Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. If you're with us this morning and you didn't bring that Bible with you, then you can use those few Bibles again. To find Romans chapter 6, if you'll open it up to page 1130, you'll arrive at Romans 6. We have been uh, working our way through this chapter here, first 14 verses, under the title of Breaking Sin's Grip. Breaking Sin's Grip. Let me just begin this morning by asking you a question. Have you ever craved anything in your life? Have you ever craved anything? You know, I worked with a guy one time. This is... um. This is, well, this is not in honor of Mother's Day. This will get me in trouble with Mother's Day. Anyway, I worked with a guy one time, that's true, who um, his wife was pregnant. And you know how pregnant women uh, use that excuse to crave things. <laughs> and uh, Carol's out of town, so I say whatever I like, right? She won't yell at me until she gets back. Anyway. His wife craved cornstarch. Huh? I bet you never heard that before. Cornstarch. And he was telling me, he said, I'm, I'm not kidding you. My wife craves cornstarch. And he said, um, the other night, this, this was a long time ago, the other night he said that she wanted a box of cornstarch. And I told her, no way was I going to the store and buy her a box of cornstarch. And this is in the wintertime. This is when we lived in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, he said, you know what she did? She put on her coat and she walked three blocks to the store, bought herself a box of cornstarch, came home, got a spoon and ate the whole box. Now, that's craving something. I don't know what in the world was missing from that lady's diet that cornstarch would supplement. But in any case, craving something. I remember when I was a boy, I craved Susie Q's. Susie Q's. They were this devil's food cake and filled with this cream and enough preservatives to, uh, you know, to, to keep you going for a good long time. That's right. And I just could not get enough of these things. And so it began to, to consume me. I began to obsess about Susie Q's and wanting them. And uh, so I actually I, uh, broke into my piggy bank and I was young. Well, without my parents' knowledge, you know, if you stick a knife uh, up inside the thing, you can get the coins to just slide down the knife. I don't know if you knew that or not, young people, but that's the way to get money out of the piggy bank. So, so uh, using a butter knife, you can just slide those coins right out of the piggy bank. Mom and Dad never know. And, um, and so, that's terrible, isn't it? Maybe I should sit down. Anyway, so I, I took this money and I went to the store and I bought... Like a bag full of Susie Q's, and I came home and I just started eating them one right after another. And um, gluttony has its own built-in consequences, by the way. And uh, gluttony for Susie Q's has its consequence. And boy, was I sick! Boy, was I sick! But craving something—I think we can all relate to that. There has been one or more things in our life that we have craved. The Apostle Paul tells us. That we must resist sin's craving. We must resist sin's craving. You know, we have seven essential truths here 
in this section, verses 1 through 14, that we must understand, believe, and act upon so that we will break the grip of sin in our lives. And we have been working our way through these truths. Verses 1 and 2, we've said you have died to sin. That is a truth that we must understand and believe. We have been united with Christ, verses 3 through 5, another truth we must understand and believe. Third, verses 6 and 7, we have been delivered from sin's power, another truth that we must understand and believe. Fourth, verses 8 through 10, our emancipation is permanent, permanent. Another truth, Paul says, we must understand and believe. And then verse 11, we must recognize reality. We must recognize reality. Now, last time I spent a a good amount of time talking about the difference between the indicative and the imperative, and I'm not going to go through all of that again, okay? Even though it's highly significant. And so if you didn't quite understand it all, you can get the, uh, the CD or you can listen to it online and go through it again. But let me just review it very quickly in, in this way. Verses 1 through 10, those first four truths are indicative truths. That is, they are declarations of reality. They are declarations of reality, and they speak about our union with Christ and what that means. How we have become united by faith with Jesus Christ, and in Him our old man, that is our old position in Adam, that is our old regenerate self, has been crucified, and we have been raised to a newness of life to walk in Jesus Christ. The mastery of sin over us, Paul says, has, verse 6, been done away with. That is, it has been nullified. Sin no longer rules us. You know, you could illustrate this whole section of truths this way. Union with Christ is like passing through a revolving door. You know, you go to a, to a department store and so forth, they have those revolving doors. You, they only go in one direction. You go through the door and it takes you into the store. You can look back out and you can see the life that was before. That is what, it, what you were and where you were before you went through the door. You can see it, but you can't go back. You can't go back through the door. And that's what union with Jesus Christ is like. It is like going through the revolving door from the old life united in Adam to the new life united in Jesus Christ. You can still see the old life, but you can never, ever go back. Just like Christ can never die again. And that declarative reality brings about a faith response from us. It brings about the imperative. The things we must now believe and do. Verse 11. You have to recognize, Paul says, that reality. We have to have a faith response to the truth about who we now are. That is, we have to constantly think about ourselves as we now are and as the Word of God describes us, new in Jesus Christ. You know, that response, that constant thinking about ourselves, that recognition of reality, verse 11, is kind of like a young man who just gets married. A young man who just gets married puts a wedding band on his finger, doesn't he? And I don't know if you've ever noticed this or not. I've done a number of weddings, and so I get a a good bird's eye view of this. Once that band goes on his finger, 
You just watch the next time how he's constantly touching it, turning it, fiddling with it on his finger. Okay, you, you just watch and you'll see that he's all subconsciously. Now, he's not paying attention. He's just doing this. He's just playing with the wedding band on his finger. And what that symbolizes is the reality of a new life for him. Gone is the life of singleness, arrived is the life of marriage. And this little band on his finger is that constant reminder of it. And so as he's, he's twiddling with it, as he's fiddling with it, he is reminding himself of this new reality for him. And Paul says, that's the way we're supposed to think about the Christian life. We're to be constantly reminding ourselves that there is a new reality. Dead in Christ and alive now with him. And that takes us to the sixth truth this morning, the sixth of the seven truths, and that is that we must resist sin's cravings. We must resist sin's cravings. Verse 12. In fact, let me just read the whole thing. We'll get a running stout out of it. Verse 1. What, are we, what shall we say then? Are we continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self, our old man was crucified with him that our body of sin might be done away with, might be nullified, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace." Verse 12, we must resist sin's craving. Again, notice Paul ties verse 12 into what has preceded the therefore. Because of what has been said previous to this, Paul says there's now action that has to happen in our lives. Now it's action. And that's the way the Christian life proceeds. We go from understanding to belief to action. Paul says we're to constantly consider ourselves dead to sin. Verse 11. He now commands us to make that a reality in our lives. Never let sin hold sway over you again, he is telling us. Do not let it reign. Do not let it rule, verse 12, in your bodies, in your mortal bodies. As I told you last time, I think he is specifically referring here to our physical bodies. He's talking about our physical bodies. This is a spiritual battle to be sure, but it is one that is waged on a battleground of your body. 
It is waged in and through your body. Bodily lusts, appetites, desires of the heart and mind, they are all woven together. They are the battleground in which it's fought out. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. James says, Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. James talks here about being carried away and enticed. Those are fishing terms, by the way. Those are the terms of a fisherman. And they convey the idea of a fish being drawn to the bait. A shiny lure placed in the water with a deadly hook attached to it. That deadly hook, by the way, James says is our own lusts, designer lusts, if you will. That is, those things that are particular to us, those things that draw and attract us, the right bait for us. It might not be all that attractive to someone else, but for us, it presents an intense craving, an intense desire. It, it draws us to it. We have to fight. Against it, because if we don't, it will kill us. It will kill us. In fact, James uses the, the metaphor of conception and birth. And just like conception eventuates in birth, so these lusts, unless they are resisted, will inevitably lead us to death. These cravings that occupy our hearts and minds, these designer lusts, will kill you. They will Kill you. James Montgomery Boyce, a very fine commentator who's gone to be with the Lord now, in commenting on this passage here in Romans 6, makes a few key observations. Let me share them with you as we're talking about this whole notion of resisting sin's cravings, okay? Listen to these ideas that Boyce brings forward. First, he says that. Even though our, own, our old self, that is the old man, was executed with Christ, sin is not dead in the Christian. That is important to remember. Okay, Paul uses the language of death here. He says we're crucified with Christ. We have died to sin, verse 2. But still, sin is not gone in the life of a, in the life of a believer. It is not dead in us. Even the most mature Christians continue to struggle against sin. It is a fact and reality of our lives. In fact, look at verse 13 where Paul, we're going to look at that next week in more detail, but Paul talks about having to, to uh, put off the old uh, behaviors and to put on new behaviors. And that kind of an, of an exhortation, that kind of a command would be unnecessary if it were that sin had no power left in us. So when we say that we have been crucified with him, that, that the body of sin might be nullified or done away with, don't in some way think that, that somehow it's been eliminated. What has been done away, what has been nullified, is its absolute and total sovereign rule over you. But it is a powerful enemy nonetheless. You know, there's no point in telling somebody to stop doing something unless they have a tendency to do it. Okay, And we have a tendency to sin. The reason we have to fight against sin, beloved, is very simple. We're sinners. Amen? It's as simple as that. We must fight against sin because we are still sinners. It seems rather obvious. 
But it's so key, so key to this whole struggle of breaking sin's grip. We have to be constantly, listen to me, constantly killing sin or it will kill us. Okay, let me say that again. We must be constantly killing sin or it will kill us. There can be no truce with an enemy that is bent on your destruction. You can't sign a peace treaty with someone who doesn't want peace. And that's the way sin is. 1938, Prime Minister of England by the name of Neville Chamberlain, along with officials of the French government, met with Adolf Hitler and signed what is known as the Munich Agreement. The Munich Agreement. And after signing that agreement with Adolf Hitler there in 1938, Neville Chamberlain, arriving back that very same day in London, in front of a crowd there, he said that we have achieved peace for our time. Peace for our time. That agreement, by the way, uh, between England and France with Nazi Germany at the time, allowed Adolf Hitler to unopposed annex portions of the, Greek, of the German-speaking uh, western region of Czechoslovakia. And so what they said to Hitler was, we'll let you take a portion of Czechoslovakia and, and annex it into Germany if you promise to be a good boy and, and curtail your aggressive ambitions for domination in Europe. We look now at Chamberlain's announcement of peace in our time, right? As the very uh, epitome of appeasement. Because it was within less than a year that Europe was plunged into the most devastating war that spread throughout this globe and killed more people than all the other wars combined. Peace in our time, Chamberlain said, in less than a year, the whole world is at war. Why? Because you couldn't make peace with Hitler. Because Hitler would never be content with what little peace they gave him. See, and that illustrates sin. That illustrates sin. Don't be fooled. Sin acts just like that. You cannot make a peace treaty in your life with sin. You can't just carve off a piece of your life, hand it over and say, you can have this much, but no more. Come this far, but no further. I will let you control this one area of my life, but all the rest I reserve for righteousness. can't be done. It cannot be done. You can't hand over a piece of your life to the dominion of sin and then walk with God in the rest of your life. Okay, you can't do it. Eventually, sin becomes dissatisfied and wants more and more and more territory and control. Apostle Paul says a little later in this same epistle, chapter 8, verse 13. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if you are by the Spirit putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. See, there's one or the other. You are either killing sin or it is killing you. Second observation that Boyce makes is that sin's hold on us is in or through our bodies. It is in or through our bodies. Now, that doesn't mean sin is external to us. I mean, we are a unity of body and soul here. 
But the body, even after conversion, retains its sinful impulses, its sinful habits, its sinful tendencies. They remain with us. Today, before you know Christ, you are under complete control and dominion of sin. It rules over you. The moment after conversion, that rule and reign has been broken, but you have drugged the old body into the new life. And so those sinful tendencies and habits and impulses remain with you, and they are strong and they are powerful, and they are at war with your soul. They have to be fought against. Constantly fought against. Let me give you an example. All of us are prone to self-love. Every single one of us are prone to self-love. That, by the way, makes you an idolater. Okay? You are an idolater, as am I. Prone to self-love. And that self-love expresses itself, generally speaking, in one of two ways. It is either a passion for comfort or it is a passion for control. A passion for your comfort or a passion for your control. Both ways of responding are sinful because they are in rebellion against God's sovereign rule over your life and over the world. Basically, you don't like the way God is running things. And so you respond to it in one of two ways. You either want to control it yourself or you want to flee away from it and live comfortably without God's role. And so when the world doesn't react to you the way you want it to react, you, you launch out in one of these two ways. Control or comfort. Those of you who love control, that's your preferred form of idolatry. It will manifest itself through dominating behaviors. Dominating behaviors. Things like anger. Okay? Anger. Something will go wrong. It will cross you. It doesn't come out the way you want. And boom, it's like a grenade going off with anger. Okay? That is a person who is in love with control. It might also demonstrate itself in a tendency towards perfectionism. Perfectionism. That is, something is never good enough for you. Which eventuates itself into a critical spirit because not only are the things you do not good enough for you, but nothing anybody else does is good enough for you either. So you're a perfectionist. Or maybe you're authoritarian. That is, you like to sit around and bark out orders. Okay? I'll tell you what to do and you do it. And my world will be happy. So as long as everybody does what I tell them to do, Life is good, right? That's a passion for control. Or nagging. Nagging demonstrates a passion for control. If I don't get what I want, I'll just continue to nag and harass like dripping water until I get what I want. Okay? That is one who has a passion for control. Or pouting. There's another good one. Pouting, right? Make them beg you to tell you what's wrong. Okay? Make it obvious to them that you are displeased. Just look at my face. But you have to guess as to what it is. Okay? Because I am in total control of this situation. So get on your knees and start guessing. Okay? And I'll tell you when you're getting warmer. Beg me! 
as to how you can make it right. What can you do to fix it? Go ahead, beg me. I love it. Okay, that's control. Someone with a passion for control. By the way, in the extreme, control can eventuate in murder. If I can't control you, I'll just kill you. That'll be the ultimate control over you. So there are those who have their idolatry manifesting itself in a passion for control. There are others whose idolatry manifests itself in a passion for comfort. And usually people, by the way, tend to fall one or the other of these two areas. Comfort lovers. Comfort lovers are characterized by things like physical withdrawal. Physical withdrawal. That is, if things aren't going right, there's a conflict or something, I just get in the car and drive away. That's how I deal with it. I just, I'm out of here. I'll go on a business trip. I'll just leave town. I'll be gone a week or two. I'm not going to stay and deal with this. I'm just going to run. Or maybe the silent treatment. I'll just clam up and won't talk about it at all. And if necessary, I won't even talk to you at all. Because I'm a comfort lover, see? And right now I'm uncomfortable and so I'm not engaging. I run away. I don't talk. Or maybe it's preoccupation, men. Maybe it's preoccupation. That is, pretending that the problem doesn't exist. Pretending that the problem doesn't even exist. I just become preoccupied with something else. I won't even think about it. You know, you get home from work and your wife wants to talk to you about something going on with the kids. You don't want to hear it. So you just keep, you take the job home with you and you just talk. You know, you just preoccupied in your mind with the job and you have no time or interest in hearing about the problems in your family. You're preoccupied. You're a comfort lover. Or maybe you're just a conflict avoider. A conflict avoider, and that is you just hope the problem goes away on its own. You know, there are families that are characterized by some of these things. They won't talk about anything. Anything unpleasant, anything uncomfortable, never talked about in the family. You know, some of you are raised in families like this. You'll all pretend that the elephant in the corner of the room is really not there, and nobody will bring out the topic and talk about it. You're all comfort lovers. Everybody's afraid. So we just pretend if it's not there, we don't have to deal with it. Isolation. Friendlessness characterizes comfort lovers. You know, to be a friend requires an exertion of yourself. You need to step out. You need to extend yourself to somebody. And that is uncomfortable for everybody. And so if you are a comfort lover, you don't even want to bother to do it. And so you're just isolated. And you say, I don't have any friends. You don't have any friends because you don't want to be a friend. You're avoiding it. And here's a big one, gentlemen. Pornography. Pornography is a sign of a comfort lover. Men who want to have relationless sex. They still want the physical gratification, but they don't want to engage in the relationship necessary to have it. And so they'll have sex with themselves. With some sort of a, an image of reality that doesn't even exist. That is a display, gentlemen. If, if, if this is something you're dabbling with, this is a display of a man who's in love with himself. 
comfort. It's all you want. And so you allow this to grow and become a craving in your heart. Do you know in the extreme case, a comfort lover, where we said a control in the extreme would lead to murder, what do you think comfort leaves in the extreme? Suicide. Ultimately, it would lead to suicide. Okay? Life is so bad, I can't engage with it. I won't engage with it. I will just completely check out. Completely check out. Two ends of a continuum, right? With incredible ungodly behaviors that manifest themselves because the cravings, the designer lusts are ruling in your hearts. Paul says, look again, verse 12, do not let sin reign or rule in your body that you should obey its lusts. Remember and understand the reality of who you are. Believe it to be true because the Word of God says it's true and then begin to act upon it, constantly reminding yourself of who you now are in Jesus Christ and then resisting the craving of sin that comes to you regularly. Now, I won't repeat last week's theatrical performance. Things like that should only happen occasionally. Okay? But there are, that, is, that is the way it has to be. You must make that decision that you are going to resist it. You're going to resist it. You're not going to give in to it. Practically speaking, practically speaking, we need to exercise control over our bodies. Control over our bodies. We need to weaken the appetites of the flesh. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 9.27, I buffet my body. Not buffet, by the way, okay? I buffet my body. Literally, it's the punch or slap under the eyes. It's kind of a boxing term, okay? I punch myself in the face and to make my body my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I should myself be disqualified. Paul says that he intentionally works to weaken his body, the control of his body, the cravings of his body. How do you do that? How do you weaken the cravings that we all have? And by the way, as I said, these are designer lusts. These are designer cravings. Your craving is not mine. And so I could look at you and say, I don't understand why you have such problem in that area. I don't have any problem at all. As if I'm somehow more spiritual than you. But my area, you could look at it and you could say, well, hey, I don't have any problems there. So don't judge one another. Don't somehow think that you are more spiritual than the next person because that person's struggling with one thing and you're not struggling with it at all and you cannot understand why. Understand why. Understand why. Because it is the, it is the body, the flesh that has been carried over that continues to war. Okay? So be understanding of one another. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. Admonish one another. But understand we all have our areas. Okay? Everybody's got their place. So how do we weaken these cravings? Let's talk about some practical things. Let's talk about sleep. Okay, sleep. Let's talk about that one. Sleep is a good thing, yes? 
is absolutely a good thing, given by God to renew and restore our strength. Okay, sleep is good. But if the craving for sleep begins to dominate and control you, it leads to sloth. That's a good biblical word, okay? Sloth, we like that. That is the person who cannot get out of bed. Okay? That's a slothful person. So how do we weaken the body in the area of sleep? Some of you are sitting here and saying, I don't know what your problem is, David. I'm up at 4.30 every morning and I'm off to work and I don't understand it. Well, praise the Lord for you that you don't struggle in this area. But there are other people where sleep is a major struggle for them. A major struggle. They have trouble getting up in the morning. Just can't get out of bed. So how do you weaken your body in this area? Are you ready? This is not rocket scientists. Or science. First thing, do not ignore the alarm clock. Okay? Do not ignore the alarm clock. That means put a piece of tape over the snooze button. Okay? Or disconnect it or buy an alarm clock without a snooze button. I had a professor in seminary said, you have to roll out instead of roll over. Okay? Put the alarm on the other side of the room. When the alarm goes off, get up out of bed and use an alarm every single day. Every day. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Saturday. Use an alarm clock if this is an area of problem for you. And weaken your body. It's control, it's lust, it's cravings for sleep. How about food? Is food good? It's yummy. Okay? It's given of God. But if we go too far with food, then we end up in gluttony. So maybe you have a craving for food. It sort of controls your life. It dominates you. Everything is done around food, right? It's not a McDonald's that you can pass by without stopping in. So how do you weaken your body in this area? Fasting. Fasting. You go without food for a day. And you make it a regular practice. I know some are thinking, but see, if I went out food for a day, I'd probably die. <laughs> right? I mean, my ribs are hanging out already. <laughs> I mean... Miss one meal, three meals, fasting. Make it a part of your regular daily habit. Begin with one meal, skip one meal and use the time to pray. And then two and then three and begin to fast regularly. So that you weaken your bodily control in this area where food no longer controls you. You eat to live, not live to eat, right? Portion control. Portion control. That means you only put so much on the plate and you don't leave the pan in the middle of the table. Okay? Just the portion control. Saying no to seconds. My mother-in-law, she's so funny. She said, you know, the reason I'm overweight is because of sin. She said, it's a sin to, to uh, have food go to waste. 
<laughs> no seconds. No seconds, gentlemen. Here's another one. Exercise. Exercise. Bodily exercise profiteth little, Paul says. So we've taken that to mean bodily exercise profiteth not at all. Okay? And so we don't do it. We don't do it. We're too busy. We're too tired. We're too this. We're too that. And so we don't do anything. I had a coach in high school in football who would say, your body can do it if your mind can. And I used to say, coach, it's not my mind that hurts. <laughs> but we can weaken the bodily cravings by regular exercise, going for a walk, you know, some push-ups, some sit-ups, whatever it is. doesn't have to be elaborate. Here's another one for you. Our passion for recreation can be a craving that can control us. Amusement. Television. Let's just get real. You know, today's the day to meddle. It's Mother's Day, right? <laughs> Television can control us. It, can, it becomes a craving. We can't sit down without turning it on. You know, 199 channels and nothing on. I've been there. <laughs> I've gone through it twice and still and nothing on. <laughs> How about reading instead of television? How about reading a book instead of watching television? That's a way to weaken the, the bodily craving for television is to read a book. Yeah, but, but Pastor, you know, I'm not very good at reading and I don't really like it. I said reading is like Exercise of the mind. That is, at first when you do it, it hurts. You're kind of a cramp. <laughs> but if you will continue to do it, you'll find that you become more proficient at it. And to the, get to the point where you actually like it. But most of us, we quit back at the cramp stage, right? We pick up a book, we read one page, we go, oh, wow, where's the TV? But the issue of contentment, just basic contentment, right? How much is enough? How much stuff is enough? How many storage units do you have to have until you're satisfied? How much yard sale stuff must you accumulate in your garage until you've reached the saturation point? How many kitchen gadgets, how many tools, how many whatevers do you have to have before you have arrived at the place where you can say, wow, I got enough. For some people, there is a craving to acquire and to possess and to own in which they never find contentment. Years and years ago, I, uh, I knew this guy was an attorney and uh, he told me that he uh, had been on the, er on the verge of bankruptcy and he was making $500,000 a year. Now, this was 25 years ago. He was making $500,000 a year and he was on the verge of bankruptcy. And I said, how is it possible to make a half a million dollars a year and be on the verge of bankruptcy? He said, it's easy. You start living like you're making $500,000 a year many years before you actually arrive there. Understand what I'm saying? And you fill in the difference with debt. 
And so you just continue to fill in the shortfalls of acquiring stuff. And pretty soon you're making all kinds of money and you've still got nothing left. It's because there's no contentment in your life. You're being driven by your cravings. We have to resist. We have to resist. Third insight, by the way, that uh, that Boyce gave is that sin can reign in or dominate our bodies. We've been kind of talking around this. This is a fact. Sin is no longer your master. Verse seven, your emancipation, your emancipation is permanent. Okay, those are those are theological realities. If you are in Jesus Christ this morning. But it can still dominate you. And you can still become a slave to its cravings. That is that you can continue to live contrary to reality. But if that's the way you're living this morning, you have hope. Because that is a voluntary decision, not a necessity. Do you understand that? If you are living like you are still a slave of sin this morning and you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and you have been united by faith with Him, Paul says you have been delivered from the slavery and mastery of sin. So if you are continuing to live like sin is your master, you're doing it voluntarily. That is an incredible statement of hope. That is an incredible statement of hope. What a futile thing it would be to say to somebody who is a slave, just reject your slavery. What a liberating thing it is to say to someone who has been delivered. Now live like you delivered. But I will readily confess to you that breaking these patterns, these old habits is very, very difficult. It is a long, painful process. And it is subject to occasional and temporal reversals. Okay, you will slip, you will fall. I know that the scriptures tell us that it is a long process and it is a tiring process. The battle between the flesh and the spirit is a very tiring battle. I told you you be constantly killing sin or it will kill you to be constantly at war is a tiring thing. And I think God wants it that way, by the way. So that we will long for eternity, for glory, to be with Christ, right? When the war will be over. A lot of people have no interest in heaven because life's pretty good right now. And they can't conceive of anything better because they've never entered into the war. If you enter into the war and you enter seriously into the war, you're going to pray for the day that the war is over. You're going to long for the return of Christ. You know, the longer you give in, the more difficult it is to overcome. I say this to you, young people, young men. The longer you give in, if you start giving in to things now, and I'll just be really specific with you. If you start giving in now to your sexual passions in an unlawful way, and you begin to structure your life like that now, it will grip your soul, it will eat your heart out, and you will be in slavery. So fight now. Begin the fight now. Don't let it dominate you. You know, when I was a boy, my grandfather had a summer camp up in the mountains in, in New Hampshire, the White Mountains. It was on a lake. 
And there was a long dirt road that led into that camp. And I remember as a boy, it was just a great delight to go and spend a few weeks up on that in that area. But it was such a long, once you left the pavement, it was such a long dirt road. And what would happen is after, after ra- the rains would come and the, and the road would get kind of muddy and the cars would drive down that road and they would start to make tracks in the road. And the more cars that went down the road, the deeper the tracks got until they became ruts. And then when the rainy season ended, those ruts dried out and then they were now ditches in the road. And the danger of that was is that you're driving down the road and, and even if you don't want to, your car just is continually being pulled into these ditches. Your wheels are just drawn by this path that has been established. It got to the point often where you could not not drive in the ditch. You understand? It was so deep. There was no option for you. And then the road graders would come along. The residents would pay, it was a private road, the residents would pay a road grader to come in and they'd come along and they would scrape the road. They'd knock down all the bumps and fill in all the ruts and the road would be smooth again. And then you could drive where you needed to drive. That's an illustration of what sin can do in our lives. See, if you give in to the cravings over and over again, you start to establish the patterns, the tire tracks in your life, and the ruts begin to grow until pretty soon it becomes automatic for you. Certain temptation comes... Boom, you're into the rut and off you go and you're carried away before you even know what has happened. You're not even making necessarily conscious decisions. You just find yourself all of a sudden in this situation and where you have sinned against God and you go, my God, how did I get here? You got here because you followed the ruts. You followed the ruts. We have to resist. We have to fill them in. We have to send in a road grader and knock off the bumps and fill in the ditches. So how do you do that? How do you begin to do that? Maybe you've got an area in your life, your designer lust, in which you have allowed uh, ditches, ruts to grow. How do you, what do you do? Are you hopeless now? The answer is no. Paul tells us that we are to reject the reign of sin. Look at it again, verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its its lusts. This is a process that begins, by the way, in the mind. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, right? Do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed in your thinking. So it begins in the mind because it is the mind that drives both the affections and the will. How do you go about doing that? You have what I call a heart talk. A heart talk. Okay, you have a conversation with yourself called a heart talk. Okay, this is not something I made up, by the way. Okay. Uh, the Bible talks about heart talking all the time. I'll just give you a few. I don't have time to read them all. I'll just give you a couple. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17 is one. It says, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. There's one who's having a heart conversation. And the conversation is saying is, I don't need God. I got it all myself. Okay? Here's another one. Psalm 10, verse 13. Why has the wicked spurned God? Answer. He has said to himself, 
you will not require it. That is, God won't do anything about it. He had a conversation in his heart. His conversation was, I can do what I want, and God's not going to do anything about it. That's a heart talk. For evil. Okay? Psalm 15, verses 1 and 2, a heart talk for good. Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Answer, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He speaks truth in his heart. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. You need to have a heart talk. How do I do that? How do I have a heart talk? In order to resist the cravings. First, you purpose in your heart not to sin. Okay, that was last week's thou shall or you shall not pass. Remember that? Okay, you purpose in your heart not to sin. Psalm 119, verse 106. I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. You make a decision that you will not give in to this area again. Okay, you make a serious decision. Second, you argue yourself back to reality. You argue with yourself until you arrive back at reality. That is, the cravings, you recognize the cravings are leading you into death and that they are not who you really are in Jesus Christ. You are a new creation in Jesus Christ. Sin is no longer master over you. You do not have to give in to this craving. You will not give in to this craving. And I'm going to argue with myself until I don't give in to this craving. Here's an example for you. Psalm 42, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Okay, he's having a heart talk here. Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him my salvation. He's depressed, he's dejected, he's down, and so he begins to talk to himself about reality. He argues himself back to reality. He doesn't give in. So let me give you an example of how this all fits together, okay? A practical example. Let's say that um, you have a cravings towards control, and it manifests itself in anger, okay? So anger is your designer lust. How do we deal with it? Well, first, you remind yourself of what is true, okay? You remind yourself of what is true. Well, actually, first, you purpose in your heart you're not going to give in to anger. Then secondly, you begin to argue with yourself by reminding yourself what is true. James 1, verses 19 and 20. Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Okay, that's the argument you're going to have with yourself. The argument is, my anger will not achieve the righteousness of God. Repeat it again to yourself. My anger will not achieve the righteousness of God. And you continue to argue with yourself the whole time you're tempted to be angry. And you continue to have this argument until you are ready to respond godly, until you have resisted the craving. Because the craving may be to defend yourself, the craving may be to excuse yourself, the craving may be to a counterattack and hurt the other person. And whatever the craving is at that moment, 
In the temptation of anger, you are continuing not to speak and to have this internal argument going on until you win. And you say it over and over again. I will not respond in anger because the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Until you can respond with humility and gentleness. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Now, if you're sitting in a meeting at the office, right, this whole thing may have to happen in a very compressed amount of time. Because you're going to get provoked. And your craving is going to be as soon as you're crossed, as soon as you're insulted, as soon as your authority is called into question or whatever the provocation is, you want to respond immediately with anger because you've got a big old rut you've carved out for yourself that says you cross me and I'll kill you. See it? So, you've got to begin to practice this when you're not in the middle of the flashpoint until you begin to level off those ruts And then when you're there in the conference room and the thing happens, you have this abbreviated argument with yourself. And I would say, by the way, that I wouldn't even respond until I had finished the argument, even if I'm sitting there in the meeting for 10 minutes and say nothing. Just sit there quietly in the meeting. And argue. They'll think you're crazy. They'll think you're crazy. But unless you do it, and unless you win, you're going to continue to drive the rut again. You see? You've got to fight. You've got to resist. And you've got to do it all the time, in every context. Until you begin to smooth it out. A little later in this chapter, the Apostle Paul will talk about carving new ruts. Ruts that lead to righteousness. Until you get to the place in your life when the provocation comes, you immediately run into the ruts of righteousness, and that's how you respond. And it becomes a second nature to you as the old sinful behavior used to be. Now, that might sound like pie in the sky, but it's not. That is what it means to grow in godliness. And Paul says this is how we are to live. This is how we're to live. We'll finish this section next time with, excuse me, we'll talk about more specific actions. But right now it begins, beloved, with a decision. A decision you will make to consider yourself dead to sin and then to resist the cravings. Resist those cravings. Maybe you're here this morning... And you're saying, I don't think it's possible. I don't think I can resist the cravings for sin. I am, I'm going to admit it. I'm in slavery to sin. Even when I don't want to, I sin. Maybe you don't know Jesus Christ this morning. Maybe you've never really experienced the power of the gospel. Well, maybe you're, you know the facts, your, your mind, you know, you could probably write it all down, spit it back out, but you've never personalized it. Never. It's a gospel that's out there, not in here.
Maybe you really still are a slave to sin. Maybe it's not been broken in your life. I mean, if you're constantly running in the same ruts, for the peril of your own soul, you need to stop and give serious consideration to that possibility. I can think of nothing more tragic than to arrive before the throne and him to say, but Lord, Lord, or they say, Lord, Lord, and he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Are we eternally secure in Jesus Christ? If you know Him as your Savior today, you bet you are. We read John 10, right? No one snatches them from the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. But that assumes that you have come to Christ in a saving way. I urge you this morning, if you don't know Him, you're sure you don't know Him, or you're not sure whether you do or not, that you make it sure. As we finish up here, there'll be some folks over here by this lighted cross. I know there's a certain sense of, uh, of embarrassment or public pressure or something. You know, I don't want anybody to see me go over there. They might think that, you know, I'm a sinner. <laughs> Give me a break, huh? We're all sinners. What do you think we're doing here? Don't let your pride stand in the way. Humble your heart before the mighty hand of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we are a people called by You unto holiness. In fact, uh, Scripture says that without holiness, we will not see You. And so these are very urgent matters for us, our Father. These are life and death things. I pray that your Holy Spirit would apply his truth where it is needful this morning in all of our lives. Our Father, I'm well aware that, uh, that the word can wound and it can wound tender conscience. And, and Lord... I, that is not my desire, and I pray that your Spirit would overcome that if it's beginning to happen in anyone today. Not to cause people, Lord, to doubt their salvation, but also, Lord, to cause people to take a good hard look at themselves. May your Spirit use His Word to turn the searchlight onto our hearts and show us who we really are. And may you help us to respond in faith to whatever we see therein. That the name of Jesus Christ be exalted. For we are to be holy, even as you are holy. Amen.